What number is this, Chip? Episode 32, Ghosty's 2015 Monkey Spectacular, Part 1. Okay, no, I mean, like, don't get excited, man. It's because I'm short. I know. Zilch. You're listening to Zilch, a monkey's podcast. Welcome to your Monkeys Podcast. I'm Ghosty, host of the Vintage Rock and Pop Shop on WFDU-FM in the New York City and New Jersey area. And every year we have a Monkeys Spectacular where I dedicate three hours, the entire show, three hours to music and discussion about the Monkeys. This year was a fantastic special and we had five guests on the program. Well, in this part one, you're going to hear three of those guests. That would be Bobby Hart, Ann Moses, editor of Tiger Beat magazine between 1966 and 1972, and Melanie Mitchell, who is, uh, I'm not quite sure who she is or what she does. But anyway, she's, she's going to be on in, in just a few short minutes. Now, I should tell you that unlike uh, this podcast, uh, listeners to my radio show, for the most part, may not be Monkees fans. As such, uh, some of the questions I ask to these guests may seem very basic to the hardcore Monkees fan. But, you know, you have to be conscious of the fact that people listening to uh, the radio broadcast might not know anything about uh, the Monkees. So, without further ado, here's Bobby Hart. In addition to The Monkees, Bobby and his songwriting partner, Tommy Boyce, wrote hits for Little Anthony and the Imperials, Jay and the Americans, Paul Revere and the Raiders, and countless others. Boyce and Hart would go on to become successful performers themselves, and now that story, the story of that songwriting and performing partnership, is told in Bobby's new book, Psychedelic Bubblegum. Let's welcome uh, Bobby Hart back to the program. And, uh, Bobby, I have to ask about that title. Where did that title, Psychedelic Bubblegum, come from? <laughs> well, it's, uh, it's talking about music. You know, that was the genre that we got lumped into, Tommy Boyce and myself, when we were producing a lot of records for very young people. So they called it bubblegum music. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, when we came back to Tommy had her first hits in, in New York, 1964, 
And uh, when we got signed to Screen Gems Columbia Music, and we came back to California in 1965, everything was changing out here. And we we would find us down at the at the Whiskey A Go Go every night, or on the Sunset Strip, or in a Love Inn somewhere. So the kind of music we were hearing out here was different than the first half of the 60s, and they were calling that psychedelic music. We'd go see The Doors or Arthur Lee in Love or The Leaves or somebody. So I said in the book that probably that was a better handle for the type of music we were doing, psychedelic bubblegum. Sure, it was progressive music, and yet at the same time it uh, appealed to the kids. Exactly, and we but we put on things like you know Indian instruments, uh, tambours and and we put on uh, that feedback guitar like Jimi Hendrix was doing, and uh, it, so it was a little little bit of a mix. Uh, Bobby, last time you were on, we were talking about the Boys and Heart documentary, the guys who wrote them, and I know it was playing some festivals and that sort of thing. Has that been released yet? You know, it hasn't been released. It's it's been in preview for about a year now, and. Uh, They'll be doing another preview at the Grammy Museum, I think, and I'll do a book signing there for Psychedelic Bubblegum, but uh, they're still looking for the money to complete the uh, licensing of some of the clips and so on, or looking for a distributor. So, Well, I'm sure that'll work itself out, because there's been this renewed interest in the uh, Boyce and Hart partnership as of late. It's kind of interesting that uh, serendipitous, if you will, uh, because when I was writing the book, which we started six years ago, with my partner, Glenn, it, it, we didn't really know that the movie would be made, but uh, it turned out that way, and it's, it's kind of fun. You know, when you were on the program last summer, we talked about a slew of Boyce and Hart songs, and the one I neglected to bring up, and everyone's since reminded me of it, I neglected to bring up Last Train to Clarksville. Can you tell us anything about uh, what inspired this Monkey's classic? Oh, well, that was the first Monkey single, as you know, and uh, First, their first number one. It's on the charts uh, before the show went on the air, actually, before the TV show was out. Um, it kind of had its uh, beginnings. I was pulling into my driveway, and I, had, I was flipping through the top 40 stations, as I often did, and I just heard this, the fade-out part of the new Beatles record, Paperback Writer. And... I could hear them saying, and I thought he was saying, take the last. That's all I got out of it, and, and it was over. And I didn't get a chance to hear about hear the song, actually, in its entirety, so probably the next day when I was going into the office or something. But I had that in my mind, but take the last, it must have been take the last train somewhere. When I heard it the next day, I realized it, it wasn't about trains or the last anything, but I had I had a title, so... Tommy thought it was a good title, and we started kicking titles around of where it could be, too. And uh, got to Clarkdale, which is a small town, northern Arizona, where I used to go in the summer. And Tommy said, well, what about Clarksville? So that's that's how it started. And I know the Monkees used a variety of songwriters and producers until eventually they wrote the songs and produced the albums themselves, but initially, weren't you and Tommy supposed to be the main uh, songwriters and producers? You know, uh, both of those uh, options are true. We uh, we first went over to meet with the producers of the television show, and it was just an em- embryonic stage, and and uh, they told us what they wanted to do, an American Beatles on television, and they needed three songs for the pilot. And uh, we convinced them we were their guys because we knew the power of combining television with with, uh, with records. 
so they hired us to not only do the three songs for the for the pilot show, but to produce the records uh, because the records that that would be released would also be in the television show. So we worked for almost a year uh, planning this thing and writing songs and uh, really honing in on the sound that we thought was going to work. And then Donnie Kirshner, who was the head of our publishing company, never paid much attention to the project until it was sold, and then he came out finally. And he called us in one day and said, you guys, I can't let you produce these records because you don't have a track record as producers. You've written, written songs but not produced hits. Right. So we were, you can imagine, pretty crestfallen for, yeah. for a few days. But uh, we kept a good attitude, and uh, a few weeks later, after Donnie had tried several of the top hottest record producers in the business, including English ones and Snuffy Garrett here and Carol King, Jerry Goff, and he, he didn't have anything that he liked, that he was, what, what they were coming up with he didn't. He didn't think was going to be good for the first Monkey album. So we we got Donnie's ear uh, finally, and we said, Donnie, it's July now. The show's going on in September. You don't have anything to release. Here's the plan. I'll take my my band, because I was working nights in nightclubs, you know, at the same time. So I said, I'll take the candy store profits in the small little rehearsal studio, and we'll rehearse We'll work up the arrangements, and you come down. It's $10 an hour for the studio. It'll cost you 20 bucks. If you don't like it, we'll forget about it. If you like it, then you've got to give us our project back. So that's what happened. He loved it. Well, Donnie Kirshner supposedly had a golden ear, so he must have been using it that day. Yeah. <laughs> I hope it was the right one. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Boyce and Hart became something of a television phenomenon, much like the Monkees, because suddenly when you became performers, you appeared on shows like I Dream of Jeannie and uh, Bewitched. How did this all come about? What, what happened was when we came, after we'd had a couple of hits in New York, Tommy and I signed with Screen Gems and came back to the West Coast. Uh, it was wonderful that, that our music publisher was owned, third company was Columbia Pictures and, and Screen Gems Television. So we got sent out on a lot of movie and television projects at the time it didn't seem like such a big deal because we were just chasing the next hit record that's all we knew was the charts right right but uh when you're looking back over the years um the songs and the music that was attached to visuals like television and movies uh have much longer longevity than those hit records and maybe the most famous piece of music uh, you and Tommy co-wrote was uh, the theme to Days of Our Lives. Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. This is MacDonald Carey. And these are the days of our lives. You know, we went over and met with the producers who had had radio uh, soap operas, and they were going to do this new soap opera. And, and we, uh, they told us what we wanted, and we thought we gave it to them, and they didn't like it. And we, so we tried a second time, and they didn't like it. Tommy was saying, you know, forget about this. It's right hit records. We, we, you know, he, he had no idea. Neither one of us had any idea they would be playing five days a week on television, you know, for 50 years. 
I know in the 70s that you and Tommy got into some more monkey business by uh, teaming up with Mickey Dolans and Davy Jones as Dolans, Jones, Boyce, and Hart, which was a fun little project. What, what's the story there? Well, my friend Christian DeWalden was a, a international uh, music publisher and concert promoter, and he came back and said, we want to we want to offer a gig to the Monkees. Uh, he, he was he'd just gotten back from Bangkok and, and uh, Thailand. So he said, would you mind calling up Mickey and, and telling him we want to offer them a gig? Mickey said that, uh, that Michael was not interested in doing any Monkees projects at that time. And they didn't even know where Peter was. He was kind of off the radar. So when I told Christian, he said, well, why don't you and Tommy go out with Mickey and Davey? So we got together, the four of us, and discussed it. And we had so much fun at that lunch that we decided, well, let's, you know, if somebody wants to pay us, we'll give it a try. So while we were waiting for the Southeast Asian tour to be put together, uh, which was a year, year in advance, uh, we started getting booked around domestically in this country. First uh, gig we played was Six Flags over Mid America, and twenty six thousand kids showed up. So we wow. knew we were onto something. We're wrapping up our conversation with uh, Bobby Hart. You, you know, you mentioned those tours with Mickey and Davey. They have a reputation for being kind of nuts. So, <laughs> <laughs> any uh, stories from the road you can share with us? Well, there were a lot, a lot of them. Most of them I couldn't probably tell on radio, but the, <laughs> you, they they were groomed to be crazy. They were actors. Those are the two actors. The other two were actually musicians. They right. had to become actors. Uh, the two actors had to become musicians. So it was uh, it was a stretch for all of them, but they were all encouraged by the television show producers to be zany and spontaneous and over-the-top and even a little rude. And so they that was their persona that they were groomed into. And uh, so when in public, you would often you would often see that kind of stuff Um come to fruition we'd go into radio stations and you know they'd be standing on the console and and uh, taking over the studio and screaming and yelling and so <laughs> we kind of followed suit voice and heart were were like the mini monkeys in a way we, we kind of kept that same attitude when we would go into radio stations in various towns and and there was a lot of pandemonium and a lot of jiving. When you're writing pop songs, you have to get your message across in two minutes and 30 seconds. <laughs> and uh, sitting down to write a book, I imagine, would be a very difficult experience because, you know, you're used to uh, condensing your thoughts into something uh, very, very potent. But now you have a chance to uh, expand. That was difficult for me because I had, I, I had that, I've always... Uh, had that training plus interviews like this one you want to tell the story fast because there's a limited amount of time right. so you do the punchlines in the book i had to learn from my co-writer uh, glenn valentine uh as i always have i've i partnered up with somebody makes it so much more fun than trying to sit there and stare at a blank page by yourself right so uh i had to learn how to flesh things out in the book and and paint the pictures and sh- and so you can smell the smells and feel the feelings uh, in all these stories. And, of course, for the first time, they're all told in depth and, uh, and in detail. Well, I'm sure it's a fascinating book. I'm going to be reading it myself. And, you know, with the book and the Boyce and Hart uh, documentary from last year, and I, I hate to be morbid here, but it, it's just a shame that uh, Tommy's not around to see all this. It's, it's 
true. I, I have that feeling all the time. You know, we go do a book signing or a screening of the documentary, and invariably I will think or somebody will say, boy, Tommy would really love to have been here for this, you know, and you just think about that all the time. He went, he left us too soon, and uh, hopefully he's, he's looking down and, and appreciating it. I'm sure he is. Uh, Bobby, where can people go to get your book, Psychedelic Bubblegum? It'll be in the stores on the 12th of May, uh, but you can do a pre-order right now, anytime between now and then, at Amazon.com or BarnesandNoble.com. And, uh, in fact, if you want, uh, if you go to BobbyHard.com, there's a form you can fill out and get a free download uh, if you you do uh, pre-order the book, a download of a a voice, uh, uh, sorry, it's not a Boys and Hearts song. It's a, it's a Bobby Hart uh, song that I sang from uh, a new musical that my, I wrote with some partners. So you can download that, and I think you'll enjoy that song, too, as well as the book. Fantastic. Bobby, thanks so much for appearing on the show. Once again, the book is Psychedelic Bubblegum. And, uh, Bobby, you have a great rest of your day. Thanks so much for the interview. It was fun, and uh, best best to you as well.
the man who wrote the songs that outsold the Beatles and the Rolling Stones in 1967 and 1968 comes the story of the first decades of his life in Hollywood, New York. The new book, Psychedelic Bubblegum, Voice and Heart, The Monkeys and Turning Mayhem into Miracles, available May 12, 2015. Immerse yourself in Grammy, Golden Globe, and Academy Award-nominated songwriter Bobby Hart's world. As half of the duo of Voice and Heart, he and his partner, Tommy Voice, wrote the songs that launched the Monkees to stardom and eventually reaching over 100 million in sales. Psychedelic Bubblegum is a roller coaster ride through the 60s and 70s during America's whirlwind era of free speech, mysticism, psychedelic pop culture, and of course, rock and roll. If you're into the 60s and 70s pop, Psychedelic Bubblegum is a must-read book. Written by Bobby Hart with Glenn Ballantyne and a foreword by Mickey Dolenz. Find Bobby Hart at Facebook, go to the Psychedelic Bubblegum Facebook page, and go to bobbyhart.com for full details. You know, over the Memorial Day weekend, there was a big monkeys marathon on IFC. And now, of course, they're showing the shows on weekend mornings. And the monkeys are also on Antenna TV and Family Net. And one of the cool things that's happened is that people all around the country are watching them and they're commenting on them on the Zilch Facebook page, making it a truly interactive experience. And you know what? You can never underestimate the power of broadcasting because maybe the average person wouldn't walk into a video store and pick up the monkeys on DVD, you know, shell out $30 for a season. But if it happens to be on television and they just happen to be uh, flicking through the channels and, oh, yeah, I'll watch this. And next thing you know, there's a new Monkees fan. Time to welcome another guest to the program. Melanie Mitchell might be a familiar name and voice to listeners of the Zilch podcast, but she's also the author of a book called Monkey Magic. Melanie Mitchell, welcome to the show. Why, thank you so much. You know, I find this interesting, Melanie, because there are quite a few books out there about the monkeys, but most of them focus almost exclusively on their music. It, it's almost as if the television show is an afterthought. That's obviously not the way that the, the monkeys started. It was a TV show that became a band. What prompted you to write a book focusing on the TV show? Well, I didn't actually set out to write a book at all. I wanted to get involved in the fandom back in 2012. Mm-hmm. And I, I had written episode reviews of other television shows before this one. Right. So I had some experience at it. So I decided this would be a way for me to sort of stick a toe into the conversation and say, hey, let's talk about these episodes. What did you like? What didn't you like? How did it work? That sort of thing. So I took the list of episode titles and alphabetized it. Mm-hmm. I started with alias Mickey Dolan's, just to give it some variety, right. and started posting episode reviews on Tumblr. And that's how it started. So it sounds like you're relatively new to uh, Monkey's fandom. I am very new. Um, I am just barely old enough that theoretically I could have seen the show back on NBC in the 60s, but I'm pretty sure I didn't. Mm-hmm. And it was an occasional thing when I was a kid. Um, it was a, I think it was a Baltimore station that carried it in the late 70s, and we could just barely pull it in our TV set. So I only saw it once in a while. I knew about the music, but I wasn't into it. You know, I liked it enough, but it wasn't a really big part of my life. 
Um, I didn't have cable in the 80s, so I never saw it on MTV, never saw it on Nickelodeon. Did catch one concert in 1987, but I didn't really get it. Um, and then after Davy Jones died, I was curious, you know, what is it that I've missed that everyone's so upset about? So I went to the Internet and fell down the monkey hole. <laughs> and I've been falling ever since. Well, now, having gone down that uh, monkey hole, why do you think this show is so fascinating to people? Well, there's the crossover between the different media, uh, television, recorded music, live concerts, the intersection between the characters and the real people um, that is very intriguing. And I think it's one of the reasons that people get so attached to one monkey or another, um, because there's the you know, loving what was on the TV screen, and then there's also respecting what's real. All right, guys, now listen, this is what, we did, what we've been working on. Um, see if you can pick this up, Mickey. Um, one, two, three, four. Da, 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 how many times did you have to watch uh, specific monkeys episode? Well, every monkeys episode to become a full fledged expert on the shows. <laughs> when I wanted to start working on a review, and that's what I call the individual chapters in my books or re- episode reviews, um, I would watch the episode usually at least ten times in a row. Mm-hmm. Just constantly start over, start over, start over, start over. Round about repeat number six or seven, I would start jotting down some of the easy things, like the the name of the songs and how they're used in the episode, um, nitpicks and uh, particularly good moments and things like that. And then round about at repeat number ten, I would start to formulate what I'd want that particular review to be about. Sometimes I'd focus on characterization. Sometimes I'd focus on a particular guest star who did an amazing job. Sometimes I'd focus on continuity with other episodes. So it's a little different for each one, but it was a lot of repeats. (laughs) You mentioned guest stars, and of course there were some very famous guest stars on The Monkees, like Rosemary and uh, Stan Freeberg, but there were also character actors who kept popping up in in multiple roles on the show. Of course... um, Monty Landis is the yes. best example of that. He did uh, seven episodes all in the space of two months in the spring of 1967. That's for filming. They were actually scattered throughout the second season, but they were all filmed as a group. Um, I've heard an interview where he said that they actually gave him the script and let him pick which character he wanted to play, Ah, which I find absolutely amazing. Yeah, he was sort of their good luck charm, like uh, the Beatles had Victor Spinetti and uh, the Monkees had uh, Monty Landis. Uh, Melanie, can you define for us what monkey magic is? I can. As I said earlier, I saw the show a little bit when I was a kid, and in my personal categorization of television shows from my youth, I had it categorized in the same section with Bewitched and I Dream of Jeannie and the Adams Family, and Nanny and the Professor, and the Ghost and Mrs. Muir, shows that were about people who were involved in magical activities. And to me, the monkeys were four 
guys in the rock and roll band who had magical powers. That's how I perceived it. Mm -hmm. And so when I came back to the show, I was really intrigued by all these instances of magical things happening, whether it's shared imagination where all of a sudden they're all wearing strange costumes and, and involved in some fantasy sequence. Sometimes it's um, a prop appears out of nowhere. Uh, a good example is in The Devil and Peter Tork when Mickey says the defense rests and then he immediately has a pillow in his hand. <laughs> it just appears. You know, that's something they can do. Costumes appear out of nowhere. And, of course, there's the monkey men, you know, flying around right. and things like that. So I don't, if the book is not about that. Um, the title is more about just the whole fantasy, you know, joy, mystery mystique that the show has but it also reference i do reference that throughout the book hey mickey how come i have to wear all this because aunt kate said they don't like strangers in town besides you look very psychedelic oh <laughs> how well it's the peace symbol and the beads mostly come on oh, let's go okay right kimasabi what does kimasabi mean <laughs> don't ask it Melanie, I understand that you went on a spiritual quest uh, recently to see uh, Mickey Dolenz and Peter Tork in concert, and this was in Canada, right? Yeah, they they were just this past weekend um, in the town of Orillia, which is about an hour and a half north of Toronto. Mm -hmm. I live in Maryland. Whoa. I love to drive. I love road trips. And I'd never been through that part of Pennsylvania and New York before. I'd never been north of Toronto in Ontario. I met so many wonderful people um, and had such a wonderful time that I, even if I got to see them again six months from now right here at home, I'd still cherish every moment of that trip. And what did you think of the performance? It was amazing, absolutely amazing. It was so spontaneous mm -hmm. and... There was just a lot of humor in it and a lot of joy and love. One of my favorite moments came during the acoustic set, and just the fact they did an acoustic set, that alone is you know, enough to make yeah. it worth the price of admission. But all of a sudden, in the middle of the, the set, Mickey says, oh, by the way, you know, Peter and his band, he didn't mention the name of the band, he just said Peter and his band do this amazing arrangement of Last Train of Clarksville. Peter, will you play a little of that for us? Hmm. And Peter looked surprised, and he turned around and said something to the band. I think he was telling what key he was going to play it in. And he started playing that lick in that bluesy way that Shusui Blues does. Yeah. And he, he, he did about two verses of Clarksville, when the band kind of joined in in a quiet, shuffly kind of way. And it was like, they already did Clarksville in the show. So it, was, <laughs> it clearly was spontaneous. It was amazing. <laughs> Now, you, you said at the outset of this that when you decided to review these episodes and fall down the monkey hole, as you put it, uh, you were curious to uh, learn what you might have missed. Did you find what you missed? Well, the most important thing is I missed Davy Jones. Mm. Um, there's a huge sense of regret that I could have been involved all these years and I just didn't know. I missed everything. I've missed the whole Just Us 97 reunion mm -hmm. thing. I've never got to see Peter perform with James Lee Stanley as the two-man band. You know, it's just, I'm, I try to catch up with YouTube, and I'm so grateful that people have taken the time to, to put information out there. 
that I can see. There's a wealth of wonderful archival material, interviews and uh, performances and TV shows that make it a little easier for me to sort of understand what I've missed, but I do know that I've missed it. Well, for someone who feels that they missed a lot of things, you've certainly gone into this guns blazing. You know, <laughs> you've, <laughs> you've published a book, you've watched every episode of the show 12 times or more. I know you're part of the Zilch podcast, uh, doing commentary tracks for the episodes. So let's put it this way. You're making up for lost time. There's no question about that. As I said, I never intended to write a book. I was just putting this on on Tumblr. Um, It was Andrew Hickey who wrote the book Monkey Music Mm -hmm. who suggested I turn it into a book, and I resisted. I was like, no, why would anybody pay to read what I put on the Internet for free? And he talked me into it. Basically, I realized if I didn't at least try, I would never know if I could have succeeded. True. So I made it a personal challenge to myself to try, and it actually happened. So why don't we give listeners the opportunity to find out for themselves what this book is all about? Where would people go to get it? Uh, It is available through Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com, both as a physical paperback and as an ebook for your Kindle or your Nook. And you can also buy it from um, iBooks, I think it's called, for your iPad. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a site called Smashwords. Pretty much any site that sells electronic books, you can get it there. But for a physical book, you'd have to go to either Amazon or BarnesandNoble.com. Once again, the book is called Monkey Magic, and we've been talking to the author Melanie Mitchell. Melanie, thanks so much for being on our Monkey Spectacular. Thank you. Hi, Zilch fans. This is Melanie Mitchell. Be sure to check out my book, Monkey Magic, a book about a TV show about a band. It's a lighthearted review and companion for the TV show that made the 60s fun. The paperback is available online from Amazon or Barnes & Noble, and the ebook can be bought anywhere that fine ebooks are sold. Check out the Monkey Magic Facebook page, follow me on Tumblr at bluemoonalto.tumblr.com, and listen for my contributions here on Zilch, a monkey's podcast. Oh, no, no, no. 
I must hang up the phone I can't hear you in this noisy railroad station All alone, I'm feeling low Oh, no, no, no Oh, no, no, no And I don't know if I'm ever coming home And I'll meet you at the station You can't be here by 4.30 Cause I've made your reservation Don't be slow Oh, no, no, no Oh, no, no, no And I don't know if I'm ever coming home Take the last train clock spell Take the last train to Clarksville Take the last train to Clarksville Take the last train to Clarksville I'm Brett Velez. My new book, A Little Bit Me, A Little Bit You, The Monkeys from a Fan's Perspective, chronicles my experiences with the monkeys from the 1960s into today, along with stories by other fans and how the monkeys touched our lives. A Little Bit Me, A Little Bit You, The Monkeys from a Fan's Perspective by Fred Velez, available on Amazon.com, CreateSpace.com, Smashwords.com, Apple iBooks, Barnes & Noble Nook, and other print and ebook outlets. The song was pretty white. Well, so am I. What can I tell you? You've been working on your dancing, though. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I've been rehearsing it. Glad you noticed that. Yeah, it doesn't leave much time for your music. You should spend more time on it because the youth of America depends on you to show the way. Yeah? Yeah. Monkeys is the craziest people. And it's true. The youth of America did depend on the monkeys to show them the way. And that meant that they also depended on Ann Moses, their connection to the Monkees and just about every other pop star in the 60s via Tiger Beat magazine, where Ann was the editor. So I think it's safe to say that most young people lived vicariously through Ann uh, <laughs> between 1966 and uh, 1972. Ann Moses is our guest here on our Monkey Spectacular. Welcome to the show. And how does one become the editor of Tiger Beat magazine? Well, uh, it, it is a long story. I'll try and capsulize it for you. Mm -hmm. I grew up in Anaheim, California, and as a teenager um, in high school, I worked at Disneyland, and I was also a fan of um, Broadway musicals, Annie Get Your Gun, Oklahoma, all those. So when they built Melodyland Theater, which is the theater in the round across the street from Disneyland, I signed on as a volunteer usher. So that was in the summer nights and weekend nights, I would go and usher people to their seats. And then I was allowed, if there was an empty seat, to sit and watch the show or to 
stand in the back and watch the show. So I saw some amazing Broadway musicals. Mm. But one night I went to work really not knowing what was on the bill. Hadn't paid any attention. I it was just it was in the it was July of nineteen sixty five and I show up and it turns out that instead of a musical, they're doing the first live rock and roll show that's ever been performed at Melody Land. Wow. Stars were Dave Clark. There were a couple of um, kind of surf bands. I can't remember exactly who. And then a, a couple that I was not yet aware of called Sonny and Cher. Oh. This was 1965. All of my friends had been watching the Beatles when the first picture was in Life magazine, then when they appeared on Ed Sullivan. And so we were just a part of that whole mass. British Invasion fangirls like crazy. <laughs> so for the first time, I see a British rock and roll band perform, and I was just blown away. And in my own mind, I said, I've got to meet these guys. So I happened to be the co-editor of my college newspaper at the time, so I went up to their manager and I said, I've been assigned to do an interview. When, when can I talk to them? And he, you know, of course, he gave me this look, like rolling his eyes and, <laughs> oh, please. But at the same time, none of the huge press attention had been paid to groups like Dave Clark Five yet. And so, basically, after telling me no two or three times and me being the bulldog that I am, I said, I said, I, you know, I'd really like just five minutes with them. And, and so their manager, Rick Pacone... Um, their tour manager, he said, okay, come back between shows, because they had a, or an early show, and then they had an 8 o'clock show, and they had a, about a two-hour break in between. He said, I'll, I'll give you five minutes with them, but that's it. So, turns out, the five minutes turned into a half an hour. I took photographs, and I got a great interview with the guys. I published it in my college newspaper, mm -hmm. you know, in the inter entertainment section, and all my friends just thought I was so uncool because <laughs> it was like, well, why didn't you write about a real artist like Bob Dylan? You know, oh. What are you doing writing about these long hairs, you know? Because the male fan base hadn't really kicked in at that point. Mm -hmm. And they, they did not think that was cool. I didn't care. But then I got a phone call from a local girl near the college. She and her mother were publishing a weekly music newspaper. It was four mimeographed pages, and they sold it for a nickel in the record stores all over Southern California. It was called Rhythm and News, and they essentially were focusing in on blues artists. And they said, would you like to write for us? You know, no money, but you'll get to go to these different shows. And I said, that sounds great. And they started sending me up to South Los Angeles, and I covered a bunch of the up-and-coming uh, black artists of the day, you mm -hmm. know, James Brown and, um, oh, I can't think of all the names now, but, you know, I was up there in the, in the little African-American clubs, and I was always so welcomed by these groups who, were, who had gotten so little attention, you know, and, until a little bit later on. So then 
a friend suggested to me, she says, gosh, you're doing all this writing for this, this newspaper. Why, wouldn't it be fun to get paid for it? And I said, well, it'd be great to get paid for it. <laughs> and, and she said, why don't you go to work for Tiger Beat? And I said, what's Tiger Beat? <laughs> and so I promptly went to a newsstand, bought an issue of Tiger Beat. I realized that one of the PR agents that I had gotten to know, Derek Taylor, who was formerly the the publicist for the Beatles, but right. then he moved to America and started his own PR firm. And I had worked with him on a number of stories um, where he was encouraging me to do stories on his artists like the Beach Boys and the Birds. And I saw that he wrote a monthly column in Tiger Beat. So I went to his office one afternoon and said, geez, or any way you could get me an introduction to them. And lo and behold, he picked up the phone. He called the editorial director, Ralph Benner. He said, you know, could she come and talk to you? And he said, can you be over there in 45 minutes? And I said, absolutely. So the next <laughs> thing I knew, I was in his office, kind of didn't have any materials with me, you know, no resume, no copies of my stories. But he said, he said, well, it sounds like you've written some interesting pieces. Why don't you write a couple in Tiger Beat style and submit them to me, and we'll go from there. And so I rewrote the Dave Clark Tide story. I rewrote my James Brown story in more Tiger Beat style, which is including their favorite colors. And right. Their, their eyes were so blue, or they were so this or so that. And, <laughs> you know, all those little details to... to get little girls' hearts pumping, and I took them in the next Monday. That was a Friday afternoon. I took them in after school on Monday, drove up to Hollywood, and uh, he said, this is great. He says, can you, can you start working part-time during your last semester of school? And I said, absolutely. So I was working about several days a week, and then, then when June rolled around, they said, well, you are going to work full-time, right? And at that point, they had started sending me to Hawaii with Paul River and the Raiders and Dino, Desi, and Billy, and on tour with the Raiders and the Standells, you know, all over the country. So I was taking my first plane ride, first time out of California. You know, life just opened up to me. It was just incredible. Wow. And I guess it's safe to say that the monkeys hit at just the right time for you and your uh, tenure at Tiger Beat. Absolutely. It was, it was that, that, you know, I started with them in January of 66, and their, their show, show aired in September of 66. Mm-hmm. And, of course, I went on the last train to Clarksville, which is, which is a radio station promotion, the day before their show was going to air. And, uh, and they per- performed before, you know, they flew in on helicopters to the, to the renamed uh, Del Mar, California, train station had been renamed Clarksville right. and then they performed and then they performed on the train train ride back which was awesome Hi Gene where are the monkeys Did you tell them about the TV show yet Mike? No man I was going to sneak it in you got to be very subtle about these things You're going to tell them that we'll be on NBC TV starting September 12th at 7:30 p.m. in colors A cool What's more fun than a barrel full of monkeys Gosh, a Rooney, Mike. I don't know. What is more fun than a barrel full of monkeys? A train full of monkeys. Dig. 
McCain's Chase chartered the last train to Clarksville, and they're going to take hundreds of lucky listeners on a trip September the 11th. True. Yeah, it's going to be a blast. The KHJ happening to wrap up the summer of 66. And us monkeys want to meet you at the station in Clarksville. Yeah, each of us will give away a color TV set. So enter now. All you do is send a postcard to Monkey Trip, Box 38130, Hollywood. Starting Tuesday morning, the bus jocks draw a winner every hour, and each winner gets to bring a friend. Mail your card in and ride with the monkeys. On the last train to Clarksville. Because my publisher had seen um, the pilot, right. and he, you know, obviously he could tell it was going to be a huge hit, he did buy the rights to, to publish Monkey Spectacular magazine and have access, you know, for, for Tiger Beat to the set. So from that point on, I spent about three days a week on the Monkey set, whether it was, you know, outside at Columbia Ranch with them swinging on vines in Tarzan costumes or <laughs> whether they were doing their kooky stuff on, on you know, the indoor set of their their little beach house, supposed <laughs> beach house, and and um, it was it was just it was a magical time, you know. Besides all the other things that was going on in music, you know, the the Monterey Pop Festival and all these other things, but the monkeys, it was just it was the TV show, and then once they started doing their live concerts, their live concerts were just fantastic. And I went on tour with them for a few days, and um, it, it just a Great experience. Now, I would imagine that a lot of the coverage, in fact, I can see it because obviously we can see these issues of Tiger Beat still today. Yeah. And a lot of the coverage centered around Davey, which, of course, makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, was he the one that you dealt with the most? I would say yes, for a couple of reasons. First of all, he was the favorite monkey. Right. We, we got more fan mail on him than anybody else, more you know, he sold more covers. Um, and But just like the Beatles, everybody had their favorite. Right. So they, they were interested in the other ones. But the second reason I seem to spend the most time with Davey is because he had been a, a Broadway actor and performer. Right. You know, experienced in the business. And he, he knew what this opportunity meant, and he knew how important it was to, how important the publicity was to further the success of the group, of himself as a performer. And it was just in his nature to be genuinely kind and giving. And so there was never a time that he would say, I don't have time to talk to you today. Or no, you. And I don't want to come to that photo shoot. He was just always. He was a partner in in in, you know, my job of of getting everything possible out to to his millions of fans. And I mean, he just made my work a delight. <laughs> and it seems, based on reports, and he was a guest here at this radio station ah. several years ago. Um, I don't think he really changed over the years. I don't. I don't either. In fact, um, when when he passed away, I happened to see a YouTube video um, shortly after that, and it had been about a week before he he passed, and he had done a performance at a theater, and they shot this little video backstage, and these people had come backstage to ask him if they could have an autograph. He was autographing things, and then he was chatting with them, and he said, thanks so much for coming to the show. And then 
I can't remember what somebody else said to him, but he stood there and he did a little soft shoe tap dance. And I mean, <laughs> he was the same Davey he was 40 years before. I'll tell you a quick story. He appeared at the Mid-Atlantic Nostalgia Convention. Mm-hmm. And after he was there for a few hours, he just started giving out his autograph for free. Now, th- this is supposed to be, obviously, you're supposed to pay and have things yep. signed. And he would give it out for free. And then he started helping, um, you know, at the end of the day, he was helping other vendors and other celebrities load their trucks. Oh, my God. From all, with all of their photos and stuff that they were selling. <laughs> that's the baby I knew, yeah. uh, you know, that I was privileged to know. When you're in a situation with the monkeys or Paul Revere and the Raiders or, mm-hmm. you know, whoever, is there ever a time when you're asking a question and you know that what you're getting from them is the party line and not necessarily the truth? Well, absolutely, yes. Because in Tiger Beat was not the National Enquirer mm-hmm. and in... In those days, it was a bit of old Hollywood had hung on to things where the the big stars got to keep their secrets because that was to everyone's benefit. You know, whether whether they were gay or they were cheating on their wife, doing drugs, whatever the case may be, it's like it was to nobody's benefit to share that information. You know, mm. with with our with our expose shows on television today, um, that's what it's become. But at that time, it it was not in Tiger Beat's best interest to you know expose some of the things that I was privy to, and and uh, you know, and they felt comfortable. You know, they knew I knew things that were going on, but they were participating in a way where they could answer my questions. And I would have something to print that was from the horse's mouth. Right. But we both knew it was, you know, not black and white. Right. Part of the reason I ask that question is, obviously, there was controversy with the monkeys when it came out that they did not play on the first two records. And then, of course, they gave concerts, which proved that they could play their instruments. Did they express that frustration to you? They didn't. I, I, I really wasn't aware of the behind-the-scenes going on with the music part of it, because I mostly, even though I was at one or two of their, well, I was only at one recording session where I got to clap on one of the records. Uh, <laughs> Which uh, one? You know, Do you remember? Yeah, uh, yeah, I'm a believer. Oh, you're clapping on that. Yes, I am. Uh, they, they had they had already put down their tracks, the vocals, and and um, they were just adding the last little last few layers. Sure. They saw me in the hall and said, "Hey, can you come help us?" And I was like, "Yeah." So to this day, when I you know when I hear that song on the radio, I can hear myself clapping. It's pretty cool. <laughs> but I was not privy to all of the the tumultuous things that were going on between Mike and the group and their producers and all those things until I read uh, Andrew Sandoval's book, which was um, The um, Monkeys, The Day-by-Day day day Story by day, of the yeah. 60s TV Pop Sensation. And that really chronicles the, the ins and outs of what they were going through on that end. And so that was my eye-opening, you know, a year or two ago. <laughs> well, you know what? 
as as we start to wind down here, because I'm I'm going to be running out of time with you, but I've already mm-hmm. decided that you have to come back. Okay. I, I want to give you an opportunity to talk about your upcoming book. Well, I certainly hope that it's upcoming. Uh, <laughs> I've finished the manuscript. Uh, it's a um, coming-of-age memoir. It's a memoir of the pop culture of the late 60s, early 70s, all about my time as editor of Tiger Beat. There's a, a lot of untold stories that couldn't be told in Tiger Beat at the time. Mm. And um, it, it just, it was, it was very cathartic to write it. Um, I started my blog three years ago, and that really opened my eyes because I got a number of people that would write me back and say, when I was 12 years old, I wanted to be you. And, <laughs> and, and I didn't have any clue that that was going on until I, I got involved in social media. And now I have a Facebook fan page, you know, Facebook forward slash Ann Moses. And I just get these amazing, well, the audience just for my fan page alone, I mean, it stretches from people that are my age back down to, you know, their kids who want to know about their parents' days Mm -hmm. of rock and roll. And just, you know, men and women, people that are interested in that time, so um, I, I just, we basically, we have the book out at a number of agents and a couple of publishers, and we're just waiting to, to get that good word that somebody wants to, to uh, bring the book out, and, and so I can share it with everybody, because there, there are some funny stories, there are some, um, you know, tear-jerking stories. Um, it, it, I think it's an interesting read, so... Uh, one way or another, with with self publishing today, it's going to come out one way or another. <laughs> well, it, it it sure sounds like a, a fantastic book, and and people can just keep up with you on Facebook, it, as you mentioned. Uh, they absolutely yeah. can, and at my blog, which is annmoses.com. Thanks so much. Have a great uh, rest of your day. Oh, same to you. Bye bye. Bye bye. You know the word oldies isn't a dirty word, not in my book anyway. Hey, this is Ghosty. How would you like to listen to a radio show that spins top hits, lost gems, and then some from the glorious years between 1955 and 1972? One that features interviews with the likes of Julie Newmark, John Sebastian, Al Jardine, Mickey Dolenz, Don Wells, David Cassidy, Angela Cartwright, Bill Medley, Ronnie Spector, Connie Stevens, and many more. Well, the Vintage Rockin' Pop Shop is on the air every Sunday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time on 89.1 WFDU-FM. That's in the uh, New York, New Jersey area. You can also listen to it live online by going to WFDU.FM. But there's an even easier way for you folks who aren't in the New York, New Jersey area and don't want to have to get up at 11 a.m. Eastern Time on a Sunday morning. You can listen to it anytime you want just by clicking the handy links over on our Facebook page. So go on to Facebook. You're probably already on Facebook. Look for the Vintage Rockin' Pop Shop. Like it, live it, love it. And thanks. Here's a uh, Monkees-related oddity to play for you. It's Mike Nesmith doing his very best Bob Dylan impersonation. What he's doing here is a parody of the Bob Dylan uh, song, Baby, Let Me Follow You Down. Here's Michael Blessing, as he was calling himself at the time, with what seems to be the trouble, officer.
I first heard this song from uh, Andy Segovia. Andy never made it as a blues guitar player. I don't know where he's picking now. think I'm young to be such a powerful protester. I'm darn near 19. I'd like to tell you about all my hard times I've seen. Walking hot dusty roads, put a pebble in my shoe, make them harder. Village, pay $175 a month for it. A lot of people think that's a lot of money to pay, but it's not for hard times. It gives me a real feeling about life and other things. First hard time I ever had was a policeman stopped me. Asked if he could see some papers. So what you want, man? Bamboos or zigzags? And with that, we wrap up part one of Ghosty's Monkeys Spectacular for 2015. Thanks for listening. Make sure to check out the Facebook page for this program, which is called Zilch. And the Vintage Rock and Pop Shop is aired every uh, Sunday morning at 11 a.m. Eastern Time on WFDU-FM. You can stream it live at WFDU.FM or just go on over to our Facebook page. Look for the Vintage Rock and Pop Shop. Like it, live it, love it. I put the playlist on there as well as a link to where you can hear the show anytime you want. So go and do. And on behalf of myself and the Zilch crew... Take some time to monkey around, and I'll see you soon on part do it. And that's our show. Zilch is an online nonprofit monkeys audio fanzine made by fans for fans. Any samples of music or interviews heard remain property of their owners. We are not related to the monkeys or any of their members, past or present. We are not affiliated with Rhino or Ray Bird. If you hear anything you like from the band, go on Amazon or iTunes and buy it. If you enjoyed the show, like us on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Thank you for listening. Until next time, I'm your announcer, Chelsea Epstein, saying always take some time to monkey around.